Morning, New Hope family. Hope that you were worshiping at home. It was fantastic worship. Great to have you back, Michael. Really glad that the worship team could be with us to lead us this morning and get us started off this way. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bible to open it up to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke for the last time this morning. This is a parable that comes out of Luke 19. And we've been in Luke for quite a while, but after this week, we'll be in the books of Matthew and in Mark to finish up the parable series. And, and speaking of that, if you don't have a parables book yet, they look a lot like this one that I'm going to hold in my hand right now. And these particular parables books can be uh, given to you for free. We have them here at the church. We can mail them to you. They're also in a tub outside the north entrance of the building. Uh, there's some available that way, but you can download them uh, electronically if you're on the website right now, or you can go there. You can bring it down or maybe go to the app and you can bring up the, the study guide for yourself. And speaking of that, that's the way you get the notes this morning also. You can go to the website and download the notes for this morning's study. Um, one further reminder for you, uh, speaking of electronically also, you can do your giving that way. I, kn I know that you can use the mail system if you want to mail in your giving. That's excellent. We'd love to receive it that way. But also you can participate giving electronically and uh, the technology team will put up on the page for you up on the screen uh, how you can get there. You just go to the New Hope website, though, and you can go to the drop-down menu and go under giving. That'll make it really easy for you. So if you found your way to um, Luke this morning, where we find ourselves is Jesus is just outside Jerusalem, and he's got about two weeks before the crucifixion. And within these final couple weeks, he has lots of instructions to give that things that some of our reminders of where he's been with them over the last few years. But in these last two weeks, he really drives home some very important points, especially related to his second coming. And last week, we found that to be part of what we were talking about. We were reminded, and this week especially with Thanksgiving week, and God just keeps making the timing of all these things come together. And with this particular week that we looked at last week, we were reminded we have much to be thankful for. Like the vineyard workers that we saw in that parable last week when we were in Matthew 20. The vineyard workers, no matter what time of day that they came, they discovered that they were all paid the same wage at the end of the workday. And so Jesus started off in Matthew 20. You see this on the screen. You see this from wherever you're watching at home. It says, for the kingdom of heaven is like... But Jesus was reminding them that no matter what the circumstances are when they come to faith in Jesus Christ, the same is true for you and I. No matter what the circumstances are of your past life, when you come to faith in Jesus, we all will receive an enormous wage at the end of the day. No different than Abraham or Sarah or David or Paul or Timothy or Philip. We all receive the same magnificent salvation if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, that's just a reminder of where we were at last week. And with Luke 19 this morning, you're going to find yourself in the story. So I want to pray with you first, especially that God would do the work that only he can do as we study his word together, especially as our hearts have been prepared through worship this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as individuals who are so grateful for what you have blessed us with. You've given us, first of all, the gifts of technology, and you didn't have to do that. But in these times with this disease around this planet, we still can connect. I thank you, Father, for technology. Thank you for putting radio waves in the air at the moment of creation. You've given us things that we just discovered in the last hundred years to be a gift to us 
from you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your word that we can study with fresh eyes this morning. Things that we didn't know 200 years ago, but archaeology has revealed to us about life in the first century. God, you've shown us new things about your word. So I pray that you continue to teach us. The power of the Holy Spirit would be at work right now. Our hearts have been prepared through worship, and now we open our eyes up to the word that you've left us. And God, we ask that you would use that to strengthen us where you need to strengthen us, to bring conviction where you need to do that, God. We pray for these things in Jesus' majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. I know you're saying that at home right now. So if you are opening your Bible to Luke 19, I want to remind you, you need to be looking for yourself in this story. I've been told that the very best stories usually are those in which you can find yourself as a character. And you will have that opportunity this morning and you have to identify yourself. And, And the great thing is you get to decide where you're at in this particular story. Jesus uses these parables in the most remarkable way. He uses the customs and the traditions and even the current events of the first century. In other words, everyday life. And then he takes the story and he shapes it according to the principles that he wants us to understand. The listeners who were surrounding him in that moment in the first century are no different. And just like us today in 2020, he wants us to get some things that he wants us to comprehend related to the setting in which he's describing this story. Now, this particular parable is going to sound kind of familiar. It sounds like the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, but this is a completely different setting, a a different occasion. So let's start off here in Luke 19, verse 11. It says this, while they were listening to these things, and these things, just pause right there for a moment, he's in the home of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector who's just made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And at this dinner at Zacchaeus' house, Jesus begins to tell a parable. And so it goes on to say, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Now, you're going to discover that there's three groups of people in this parable this morning. And these three groups are the categories that we'll summarize along the way, and you'll find yourself being able to determine where do I fit? Which one of the three am I by the time you get to the end of this story? So verse 12 picks up this way. So he said, this is part of the parable, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. If you've downloaded the notes already this morning, you see Greek words in your notes, and you'll see this up on the screen, eugenis. And eugenis is specifically the nobleman, the nobleman that Jesus is referring to here. We're talking about somebody who's well-born, literally of a high class. He comes from a high-ranking family. That's the imagery that he's presenting here. Let's frame it the way that Jesus is presenting it. The nobleman is going away from his home country in order to receive a kingdom. We need to understand the background of what's going on here. In other words, someone who is a higher authority than the nobleman is going to bestow on the nobleman or coronate him, if you will, the responsibility to rule over a kingdom. So the nobleman is leaving his home country, going to a distant land. 
He's going to receive his kingdom and come back and rule over his own country. That will be the kingdom that he's receiving. So his very same country he's departing from is the one he's going to receive. He's going to travel to this distant land. He's going to receive his own, and then he's going to come back, and he's going to rule. I said Jesus builds these parables out of customs, out of traditions, out of, out of real events. Well, this particular parable is being built out of a real event. There was a nobleman. His name was Archelaus, and Archelaus went away to receive a distant kingdom. I'll explain that more to you in just a moment. In the first century, Rome had already invaded Israel. They had expanded their territory far beyond Israel to the east into what we would today think of as Persia, of Iran and Iraq. That was all part of the Roman Empire. So by the time of Christ, Israel was already an occupied country, and it was under Caesar's grip. It was under Caesar's military rule. It was under Caesar's taxation. So people living in Israel knew what it was to be occupied by a foreign government. That's the world that they live in. Well, in this particular event, although he's completely unmentioned, the higher king that the nobleman is going to see, that's Caesar. Caesar is the king with a big K. The nobleman will be the king with a, a little K. Now, Caesar politically was very, very wise and he knew that while extending his empire out into further regions, he had to be very careful that when he's ruling over these foreign people groups, that he had to honor their current traditions and their current culture. And so he was very cautious not to supplant the existing leaders who were already in power. But he would take one of their leaders and he would give them a coronation. He would give them authority, the authority of Rome to rule over the land that Rome now occupied. It was all part of the political world that they lived in. So in this fashion, Rome was really careful to allow kings with a small K to be under the authority of a king with a big K, which was Caesar. Caesar's the king with a big K, and he's got small kings under him. So the subordinate kings were allowed to rule and remain in office as long as they were loyal to Rome, but it was officially Rome's responsibility to put them in power. That's the world of the first century. That's the world Jesus is in. Rome has to coronate a subordinate king and give him the authority, and that's Archelaus. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a moment. Just hold that while Jesus sets up this parable for us. So in verse 12, we're told that we have this nobleman who's going to a distant country. And in verse 13, you see this on the screen, and he called. That means the nobleman. He called the ten, 10 of his slaves, and he gave them 10 minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. So before the nobleman travels to the distant land, he calls in 10 of his servants and he's going to give them each a mina. And a mina, I'll explain to you, is a wage. I'll explain that more fully to you in, in just a moment. So he's going to travel. He's going to give them some responsibility. He expects they're going to do business and earn profits for him while he's away on this very long journey. And in this way, here's what Jesus is driving at. In this way, they can demonstrate their respect and their dedication to the one who rules over them. And at his return, he will evaluate what each servant has done for his kingdom. Verse 14. But his citizens hated him. Now, that's not the servants. That's the people of his country. 
verse 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now at this point is where the historical events and the parable that Jesus is telling begin to separate. They're still together, but they're running two separate tracks now. Jesus is giving some new information. Did you notice as you're reading this, there's nothing in the parable that indicates why the people hate the nobleman. There's no reasoning given behind it. He just says the people of his land hate him. The citizens hate him without a reason that's mentioned here. That's just like Jesus' statement in John 15, 25. Look at this on the screen. They hated me without a cause. Jesus is speaking about himself. And he's talking about the rulers of Israel and people of the nation who hated him without any cause whatsoever. Israel's hatred of Jesus at this time is completely baseless. But the hatred of Archelaus... Now, that's entirely understandable. There's a good reason. Let me expand on that. Let's return to this thought of kings with a big K and kings with a little K. During the time of Jesus, kings with a little K were allowed to rule over Israel. I mentioned that earlier. The ruling kings were known as the Edomites. Edomites were of the line of Esau. You might remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a brother. His name was Esau. Jacob became the father of Israel. His name actually, his nickname became Israel because he was the progenitor of it. But his brother Esau, he became the progenitor of the Edomites. And from the Edomites became a ruling class. They were also rulers known as the Herods or the line of the Herods. The most famous of the Herods was Herod the Great, and he pronounced himself Herod the Great. Well, Herod the Great died in 4 BC. When they read his will, his will was that Israel would be divided into three categories or three parts, th three regions that would be given to his sons. So at his death, each of his sons immediately seized their territory. And they went in and began to rule. One of the territories was the region of Judea. Judea incorporated Jerusalem and Jericho. The one who was given that region of Judea, his name was Archelaus. He's the son of Herod the Great. And so he's gone in and he's seized his territory. Now remember, just pause here for a moment. Jesus is only 17 miles outside of Jerusalem at this point. He's in a city called Jericho. That's where Zacchaeus lives. He's just healed two blind men as he's moved through Jericho. And then he's encountered Zacchaeus, who was in a tree sitting on a limb watching Jesus walk by because the crowds were so great. And Zacchaeus has Jesus come over for dinner, and, and he gives half of his goods to the poor, and he pronounces his faith in Jesus. And Jesus begins telling this parable. And the parable that he's telling is rooted in history. And all of Israel is very familiar with Archelaus. This ruler had actually constructed a palace for himself right in Jericho. And because Archelaus wanted to establish his rule and impress Rome, when he seized power, he went right out and killed, slaughtered 3,000 Jews. 
because he's an Edomite. He doesn't care as much about the Jews. They're not his people. He's just a ruler over the Jews. He's like a half-cousin, a distant half-cousin. He kills 3,000 people to impress Caesar, and the people hate him for it because he's wicked. He's despised. Now, before he can legally seize power, he has to go to Rome. He has to go visit with Caesar. He has to have the blessing of Caesar. But when Archelaus went to Rome, the people appointed a delegation, literally sent a group to follow him. They, they dogged him all the way there. And when Archelaus appears before Caesar and begins making his argument about why he should be king and that his dad anointed him, his dad gave him Judea, this delegation shows up and they begin making a plea to Caesar and they begin saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. And this is the line that Jesus used as we saw in these earlier verses. They're protesting to Caesar, and they make this plea. They're the adversaries of Archelaus. Now, historians tell us that Caesar, being a very astute politician, he learned the things that Solomon understood. He knew what it was to divide the baby, and he found middle ground. In order to appease the people and to please Archelaus, he said, Archelaus, you will be a king, but you won't have the title. You will rule over the people, but you won't gain the title king until you've earned the favor of the people. Well, history tells us that never happened, but he did go back and rule, so the people hated him, but as a result, the nobleman returns. He's received his kingdom, as Jesus is describing in verse 15, and he has his authority now, and that's real-world history, and Jesus uses it to build this parable. But here now in verse 15 is where the parable takes over and history takes a back seat. Jesus says this in verse 15, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, meaning servants, to whom he had given the money, he called to him so that he might know what business they had done. Now remember, we're not talking about history anymore. We're talking about the parable. In the Greek world, in the Greek language, the word business means the word pragma. You see that in your notes this morning. You see it up on the screen, a very long, big $10 word for pragma. It's, it's much longer meaning in the Greek language, but it's the word that's used to do business, and we use the word pragmatic in our world. So the nobleman has said something to his servants. He's saying, do something pragmatic. Do some pragma, do some business with this money that I'm giving to you while I'm gone away to receive my kingdom. Make some good use of it. So we see that in verse 13. You look with me at this, just bear down on Luke 19, 13. Do business, do pragma with this until I come back. What did he give them to work with? He gave them minas. Mina for them was a form of money. And he gave one mina to each person. So a mina in the first century represented three months' wages. So he's given away about 30 months' worth of income for the average person, but he's divided it up over 10 of his servants, making sure they have something to work with. Jesus is giving a very real-world story here. So they've got this cash to work with, and they're expected to produce something with it. Now, just a reminder for you again, Jesus is very near Jerusalem. 
And the disciples and the followers of Jesus have something in the back of their mind. Their thinking is that the kingdom of God is about to appear immediately, that it's very imminent. They just can't wait. It's what they expect. They've seen the miracles. They've heard the authority by which Jesus speaks, and they're thinking as they crest the hill over towards Jerusalem, they're going to see the kingdom of God appear. It's what they're anticipating. Look with me at verse 11 again on the screen. He was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Church, because God knows that, because he knows the hearts of these individuals. He has to keep driving in their head over and over and over again. It's not the reason I'm here right now. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you just back up in chapter 19, just a verse to verse 10 and verse 11, you see Jesus actually say, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Why does he have to keep telling them? So that they understand the right order of priorities. It's Jesus saying, before I can bring the kingdom, before I can make that a reality, I must do a work of salvation first, a salvation work. Can I remind you, especially if you're new to church, in in the first coming of Jesus, he comes as a savior. It's in the second coming that he comes as a conquering king. Just hear me out on this. On a micro level, at the first coming, Jesus did not come to overthrow Rome. He did not come to establish a kingdom on earth during that period of time, an earthly kingdom. That was not the objective of his coming, even though that's what his followers wanted. Those are things that humans are consumed with. They wanted God to do what they wanted God to do, and they perceived that God should do it now. So on this macro level, we just talked about a micro level. On a macro level, the big picture of the first coming, Jesus did not come to make the unsaved world moral. He's going to do that in the future. Stop expecting the unsaved to act morally. God isn't forcing that on them. He expects us to live as believers in that way. He did not come to straighten out discriminations, which are so common among our planet. That will happen in the future. Right now, we live among a rebellious people. He didn't come to wipe out social injustice. That's existed since the origination of man, and we've inhabited this planet. Those are all things we desire, and they're good, godly things. They're godly objectives for sure. We want a peaceable world, and and we're commanded to actually pray for the peace of this world. But hand in hand with that, as a church, we, we must do our part to represent the kingdom that way. But those are not the primary objectives of Jesus' first coming. And that's what he was trying to help his followers understand. If that was the primary objective, you can know for certain it would already be established. It wouldn't be a hope. It would already be a reality now because in a perfect world, injustice and discrimination and immorality would not exist. But that's the future earthly kingdom Jesus is going to establish. While those are all things that we hope for, they are not the focus of his first coming. The primary thing that Jesus came to do is to save. God the Son became Jesus the man to do a work of salvation. God the Son 
leaves the throne of heaven, becomes Jesus the man to do a work of salvation. I say that over and over again because Jesus had to say that over and over again. That's the primary reason he came. Luke 19.10, you see this on the screen. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And there are those who get it. They understand that's what Jesus is after. That's what Jesus came to pursue. It's what he expects us to pursue. Surely, as a biblical church, we need to represent Christ on earth, and we do rescue the orphan, and we do care for the needy, and we do pursue a peaceable world. We want all those things as a reality. But at the same time, the greater preeminent focus, this is the heart of new hope. This is the reason we launched the church, to be a biblical community, to point people to the only one who can save us from sin. So the first coming meant that he came to bring salvation to those who will confess sin, repent of their sin, and follow him. In his second coming, he will restore the earth. And you wanna talk about a climate change? It'll be a total climate change. He's gonna change everything. Places, the Bible says, where there are only deserts now, there'll be streams and rivers and, and fountains and pools. It'll be a completely renewed planet, morally and physically renewed. He will reign over that earth and he will reign with justice. But that's for us to explore another time. In this parable, the reason he's telling it is to pull out these three people groups and here's why I'm encouraging you to find yourself in the story. See if you can identify yourself with one of these three people groups. You've got those who did what they were supposed to do while he's away. You've got those who did not do what they were supposed to do while he's away. And then you have those who are blatant enemies of the king. Those are the three people groups he's calling out in the midst of this parable. So you're either a true servant or a false servant or his enemy. Those are the only three categories represented here. So let's get back into the story. Verse 15, it says, when he returned after receiving the kingdom, and here we're moving into the second coming. This is talking about when he comes back. After the coronation, after he's received the kingdom, he comes back. This is talking about Revelation 19, when Jesus descends from heaven on a great white horse, we're told. And you can read about that in Revelation 19 later today yourself. That, that's what this is hinting at here. And at that moment, at that point in time, there will be a reward event, and that's verse 15. And verse 15 says, follow this on the screen, he ordered that these slaves be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. That goes right into verse 16. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. Verse 17, and he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over 10 cities. Now, if you're tripping over the word slave that's used here, the word servant is also used, it's the word doulos. And if you're thinking 1850s slaves in the United States sitting in chains, a human being being abused, that's not what this is referring to. Doulos is meaning a trusted employee in this case, someone who's been given a lot of authority. And in this particular case, the ruler has entrusted them with finances, a lot of finances, not enormous, but he's trusted them with three months worth of income to go out and do business for him, to do pragma. So we have someone who's a trusted employee and being 
put in a position of responsibility. So what's this distribution about that we're learning about here? This is Jesus saying, if you want to be identified as a trustworthy servant, if you want to be identified as someone who will be ultimately rewarded, and if you have a love for me and a commitment to me and a commitment to the kingdom, make something of your opportunities. Make the most of the pragma, do the business of the kingdom. Invest your life, invest well with your responsibilities for the sake of the kingdom. We're talking about an investment that makes the most out of the gifts, out of the responsibilities, out of the opportunities that God brings your way. This is that distribution that he's done. He's presented them with opportunity by giving them resources to work with. And he expects a return on the resources. So in this parable, we have the, those who profess loyalty. And all 10 of them profess that they're loyal to him. And all 10 have been given responsibility. And he calls them in and asks for an accounting of what they've just accomplished. And this servant has said in verse 16, you see this on the screen, your mina has made 10 minas. That's a great return on investment. If, if we're going to use modern day language, we do an ROI, a, a return on the investment. The, the king trusted him with something and he's returned tenfold back from what the king gave him. Your mina did this, master. I, I just put your resources to work and it did this. You created the environment, master. All I did was act on it. I just loved this first servant's response. It's a response of humility. He's just saying, I took your resources and it did this and you're looking at humility here. So look at the master's response in verse 17. Because you have been faithful in very little thing, you're to be in authority over 10 cities. I want you to, to consider the comparison that's being presented to you here. He's saying, you've been very faithful in little. I'm gonna give you an enormous return. You've received just three months wages in the story. That's a common wage. And now you're gonna get authority over 10 cities? I mean, wow, what? In this moment, you'd say, wait, what? This, this is, if you'll forgive the analogy, this is like God saying, you've been a really faithful worker in Okemos. Here's Montana, right? You've done so much with so little, I'm just gonna give you an entire region. Look at the graciousness of our God. He's incredibly generous in the reward system. In a very biblical viewpoint, I, I think that Jesus here is hinting at the responsibility that you as a believer in Jesus will have to rule in the future kingdom. Did you, did you know that was a reality? The Bible says that believers will rule in the future based on the responsibility of what they carried out here on the earth. Read about it today in 1 Corinthians 6. It, the Bible actually says we will even rule over the angels. But we won't get into that right now. Let, let's go to verse 18. The second came saying, your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, you are to be over five cities. The second is your mina made five. I invested it and it got a return. And he's speaking to the reality. And I love what Jesus is drawing out here. He's saying not everyone has the same opportunity. Not everyone has the same return because not everyone has the same gifts. 
we haven't all been given the same responsibilities. Your responsibilities and your opportunities are different than mine. My gifting is different than yours, and that's the beauty of the kingdom. And I love the honesty of what Jesus is presenting here. It's a very honest beauty that he's acknowledging here. Some will have less productivity, but they'll still be greatly rewarded, over-the-top reward. So here in this first category, we've made, met the faithful believers, the true believers, and their love for their master is obvious. Their respect and their desire to elevate the kingdom is really obvious here. Dr. MacArthur summed it up this way. You'll see his quote in your notes and on the screen. It says this, this is about living your Christian life as a trust taking the truth, the power of the Spirit, spiritual opportunity, spiritual gifts, spiritual privileges, everything the Lord puts in your life and maximizing it for His honor and His glory. And here comes another one now in the next verse, verse 20. This is another reality. Here you have a poser, a pretender to the kingdom. It says, another came saying, Master, here is your mina which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. Verse 22, the master responds, and he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Notice that's asked as a question mark. I want to bear down on the word another. Another came. Heteros is the word that's used. You see it on your notes and you see it on the screen in the Greek language. It means another of a different kind, not belonging to, an, an unorthodox, if you will. We'd use that church word. So one who is different or altered or strange. So here we have a person who's different than the other servants. One perhaps we would say not of us, to use other biblical language. And he says, I put it in a handkerchief. Now, you don't take something of great value and put it in a napkin. So we're getting this picture here of someone who's unambitious, who's lazy, who can't be bothered with the things of the kingdom, and he's playing it safe. And he puts it in a handkerchief and hides it away saying, I can't be bothered with those things. I need to get on with my life. I don't want to take a risk. I don't want to put myself in a dangerous place, so I'm just going to hide it away. I don't want to take a risk. And do you notice the accusation that came out of that? This one made an accusation against the king saying, I know you're unfair. I know how unfair you are. Uh, it's safe to say that this one has no love relationship for the master, certainly has no dedication to the kingdom and no concern for the advancement of the kingdom and no dedication whatsoever to the relationship. Therefore, it translates to no interest in advancing the kingdom. So we have a false follower, or at least he appears that way. He's totally ambivalent, takes zero responsibility for his actions. And then notice he conveniently shifts the blame. It's your fault. I know who you are. I know your character. You know this, church. You know that no true believer would do this. No true believer would stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and say, you're a liar and a cheat. Because we know that's not true. 
A true believer wouldn't do that. That's why you can lean into this and say, this looks like a false believer. So defend, to, to defend his own mismanagement of his resources, this false servant has the gall to attempt to paint a negative picture of the king. He wants others to be persuaded and buy into what he believes of the character of the nobleman. Dr. Tozer said this, Dr. A.W. Tozer wrote back in the 1930s and 40s, he's passed on since then, but he said, nothing twists and deforms the soul more than a low concept of God. The witnesses who are watching this story unfold, they know the whole story. They know the real story, and they know this accusation is incorrect. Those who received the 10 cities, those who received the five cities, they know that master is very generous. They know that master puts things in their trust and entrusts them to make a return on it. They know that that accusation is not true. You, New Hope, stand as a witness. You've received the grace of God. You know that that accusation is not true. God is rich in mercy. He's gracious to those who believe. So we know that this is not a legitimate accusation. That's why the king returns with that phrase, by your own words, I will judge you. Just look with that, man. Look, look at your Bible. By your own words, I will judge you. See, if the presuppositions about the king's character are false and the readers know that they are, you, New Hope, know that those are false charges, this false servant is even more condemned so the king has to say to him, I will judge you, you worthless slave. And Jesus will never call any of his own, his true children, worthless slaves. That's how you know that's a new category. This is a false follower. Someone who poses and pretends, but is not legitimate. Verse 23, then why did you not put my money in the bank and having income, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystander, still in the parable, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. This is the king saying, if you really faithless servant, if you really false servant, really believe what you just said, and if you truly feared me, you would have done the minimum. And he's playing off very familiar imagery. He said, you would have at least gone to the bank. That's that next Greek word in your notes, this word trapeza. They didn't have banks in the first century, not the way that we think of a bank. They had moneylenders' tables. You saw Jesus flip over tables inside the temple of the moneylenders with the table, the bench. That's the word trapeza. That's where people would go to do business at the bench of the bank. And the moneylenders would sit there. He said, you would have at least gone to a moneylender and, and gained some interest for me. So what the king has done is he's just exposed the illegitimacy of this false servant's very, very weak excuse. Here's the truth. Here's what drove him and here's what drives those who are posers. Apathy drove the decisions of this person's life. He didn't really care about the king's objectives. As long as it suited him, he was content just to play it safe. He just did the easy thing. There's no risk there. So he, the thing that he did, which was nothing, 
just going to go on with his life. And so the reality of God's eternal judgment enters into this parable. Verse 26, I tell you that everyone who has, more shall be given, but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Truly, in our generation today, church, the sad reality is that there are churches around the world that are filled with the second category. Individuals who are posers, who pretend church, who pretend relationship with the king, but there's no legitimate relationship. There's no putting themselves on the line for the kingdom. They'd rather just play it safe, step back, and no dedication to the king, not even giving a minimal return. Jesus is saying, if you really belong to me, if you really honor me, at least do the minimum. There's got to be some measurable fruit in your life. In verse 26, he says, that one's going to be taken away. That one's going to have everything removed, stripped of every false pretense, all that could have been. All the opportunities that could have been ends up with nothing. And that false follower becomes worthless for eternity. He's been stripped of it all. So now we've met these two categories of people. In one category, we've got the true follower. He actually gives evidence there's real fruit. And the other, by all outward appearances, is a person who shows up at church. It's even a person who might worship alongside you, actually looks like a legitimate servant. In our day and age, just like in that day and age, the servants all look the same. It could be an individual who somewhat casually is connected with a church body, surrounded by the truth, hearing the gospel, but there's no fruit, there's no productivity, and in the end, it proves actually there was no real relationship. That's just a house of cards. That's a false follower. So then also at the second coming, Jesus is going to deal with the third category, which is the enemy. And it says this in verse 27. But these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Those who reject the king are not forgotten. He's doing an accounting process. He's had the first category come in, and they said, we've produced 10, we've produced five. And he's had the second category come in before him. And the second category, he had to deal with them saying, you're a false follower. And now the third category couldn't slip out the back door while he's talking. They're not forgotten. He brings them in and he says specifically, bring these enemies of mine before me. They didn't want me to reign over them. They're not forgotten by the king. And he needs to settle accounts with them as well. And he commands, he commands their destruction. This word slay is an incredibly strong word in the New Testament, it, and it means to cut them down completely. Last Greek word in your notes this morning, katafadzo, and, and it means exactly what it says here. The enemies are enemies because they've intentionally set themselves in opposition to the king. They don't want him. Their decisions have consequences. And there's no dancing around what the master has just said now. It means what it says, and I'm sure you can draw your own conclusions on what Jesus is driving at. T.W. Manson was a Bible commentator, a theologian. He lived in the 1800s. 
in way back in the 1890s. He studied the same passage that you're studying. And he drew the same conclusion you've likely drawn this morning. And this is what he wrote. I want you to read his quote. We may be horrified by the fierceness of the conclusion, but beneath the grim imagery is an equally grim fact, the fact that the coming of Jesus to the world puts every man to the test, compels every man to a decision, and that decision is no light matter. It is a matter of life and death, and I would add to that a matter of eternal life and eternal death. So Jesus ends the parable with that thought. That closes the parable, but Luke adds a final detail. Even though Jesus has finished talking, Luke adds this in verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Why that detail? Because it's only a few days and Jesus will stand as a king with a robe on and a crown of thorns on his head. And he will hear the mob shout, we have no king but Caesar. Another way of saying, we don't want that man to rule over us. They hated him without a cause. Jesus is the nobleman in the story. You are one of the three categories this morning. In 2020, we're living in the in-between. We're in between verse 14 and verse 15. The king has gone away. He's received his coronation. He will return and he is coming back. And you as a hearer of the word this morning are left to decide which category do I find myself in? Or better yet, this is a better question. Perhaps, which category do you want to be in? Where do you want to find yourself? And it's why I started out this morning by saying, you're in the story. You just have to identify which one are you? Which one do you want to be? And if in the end you find yourself as being anything other than a faithful follower, perhaps your heart is pricked right now saying, I might fit into that second category. Maybe you're new to church and you've never heard these things before. Perhaps you've identified, I want to be in that first category. If you find yourself as anything other than the first category of the faithful follower, I'm here to tell you it's not too late. You get to decide which category you find yourself in. Are you faithful? Are you a poser? Or are you the enemy? And if you come to the conclusion that you're anything other than a faithful servant, it is not too late to change. And if you will confess him as your king, as your Lord, ask him to forgive your sins. Repent of your sins, meaning go the opposite direction. God says he will be faithful and just to forgive us our sins Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and he will, as a good king, lavish grace on you for eternity. That's an amazing, amazing parable. I'm so thankful that Luke included this in his account of Jesus' life. Let's thank God for that story, and I'm going to ask that you would really take this time this week to consider which category do I land in. Let's pray together, New Hope. 
Father, I thank you for the worship that we started the service with, and I thank you for the way that we get to end the service by worshiping you through prayer, worshiping you for being such a good God to be so gracious to us, to forgive us of our sins and give us an opportunity for a new beginning. What comes to my mind right now, Father, specifically are individuals who might not know you yet. God, I pray that your word has gone forth in power and that you would draw those individuals into a relationship with you. All of us should want to be in that first category, Father. But the sad thing is some individuals haven't yet had their heart convicted. And so I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would bring conviction. Help us to find ourselves in the story and to make a decision accordingly. God, I pray for your blessing on everyone who has been able to be part of this service this morning. And going forward, God, I pray that you would use us as wise stewards of the minas that you've entrusted to us. Use us to bring a return on your kingdom, to advance it for the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, for he's worthy of it. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.